How much farther? How much longer? Said in a whiny voice. So our sermon this morning is going to be about gaining perspective on making it to the end. And there are perhaps few questions that more accurately capture our finiteness than how much longer. Some examples. This is me, two-thirds of the way through a run or any bike ride that I do. (laughs) This is the Navy SEAL in training, treading water, holding weights over his head. This is my kids this week as we go on a 10-hour car ride to visit Granny. And my answer is always five more minutes. Uh, Or this is uh, perhaps your or my six-year-old asking me during the sermon, how much longer? This is the cancer patient going through chemotherapy. This is a spouse in a difficult marriage. This is the Christian experiencing acute persecution in the workplace. This is an eighth grader trying to figure out how to navigate difficult relationships in middle school. This is the young adult eager to get married but unable to find a potential spouse. This is the employee whose boss is unfairly critical or unjust. It is the teenager struggling with a secret addiction and seeing no way out. It's the middle-aged man wrestling with with unexpected depression and mental illness, or it's a prolonged season of unemployment or underemployment with its financial strains. So we ask in all of these situations, how much longer? Because the situation is usually uncomfortable or outside our control. Sure, there are specific things that we can do in the midst of one of these situations, But the situation itself is still outside our control. It's bigger than us. And it reminds us of our finiteness and our limitations. Now, we don't ask how much longer because we actually want to know the answer of exactly how long from this point until the end. We ask it because we want to know how quickly can we get from this difficult situation to relief, to comfort, to something new, to a new level of satisfaction or security or restoration. So is there a specific situation in your life for which you might be asking, how much longer? Now, we don't see this question in our text, actually, but we see the answer to this question in our text this morning. So our goal is to gain a perspective on how to get from where we are to the end. Now, what the end is, we'll talk about as we go along. We're going to see this in answering the question three ways. We'll see what it takes to make it to the end. And these are the three things we need. We need, so after suffering a little while, we'll make it to the end, point one. Number two, through God's personal involvement and power, we will make it to the end. And number three, we'll make it to the end by standing firm in God's grace. Let's pray again together. Thank you, Lord, that you are our chief shepherd, that we can trust you to lead us in green pastures and beside still waters. Thank you that we can trust you to 
lead us and feed us and care for us. We pray for your help, Lord, as we seek to persevere in faith in such a way that we bring glory to your name and to Jesus Christ. We pray for your help that you would give us more of your Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, especially joy and peace as we endure sufferings during our time here. This morning, Lord, I pray specifically for Pastor Warren Harvey at Ambassador Presbyterian, one of our, one of our churches in the area. As Warren comes out of a five-month sabbatical and rest, I pray that you would just give him strength and give the church vision as they begin a new season of ministry together. Lord, would you bring fruitfulness to them in this season? And Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at these last few words from Peter's letter, that we would be filled with confidence of your work of redemption and restoration in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So point one, after suffering a little while, we're entering into the final few verses of our series through uh, the letter of First Peter. And we've called this series Perspective, and through the last 21 sermons or so, we've worked hard to gain a perspective on lots of new things. We've gained perspective on the new birth and uh, the prophesied salvation that we experience and the fear of the Lord and the nature of the Bible. We've seen Christ as the cornerstone. We've seen ourselves as a people for God's possession. We've learned about our responsibility to live under the governing authorities and human institutions. We've learned about marriage and defending the faith. We've learned about suffering. We've talked about Jesus' suffering and also many passages in the book about our own suffering. We've explored the dangers of pride and the importance of putting pride to death. We've talked about our chief shepherd and and what it means to have shepherds in the church. But we need to remember, Peter wrote this letter to exiles, so chosen exiles, those whom God had chosen to be his own children, who were dispersed throughout Asia. These Christians were suffering in various ways. And as Peter goes through the book, he talks about many of those different ways they were suffering. And suffering often makes us feel isolated from others. And this was the case, perhaps, for Uh, the ones Peter was writing to. And yet Peter reminds them that suffering actually identifies them with God's people in a unique way. Daniel told us last week that we're not suffering because we're excluded from God's people. We're suffering because we're a part of God's people. So our, our sermon isn't exactly about suffering, and yet it's such a large part of Peter's letter and a large part of of even this passage of how do we get from where we are to the end. And we might realize that Peter uses suffering as bookmarks at the beginning and at the end of his letter. So he he talks about suffering at the beginning, suffering at the end, and, and this is instructive for us because our impulse is when people are really going through a difficult time, we perhaps refrain from giving them instruction on Christian living. And yet, this whole book of 1 Peter is Peter acknowledging they are suffering, 
and yet he's telling them how to live. And so we want to do that with grace, but we should learn from Peter that, that much of our life is going, to be, uh, is going to be touching suffering all around us. And that doesn't mean we can press pause on our own growth and sanctification for God's glory. So let's review some of what Peter has said so far about suffering in 1 Peter. I'm not going to put these on the screen. If you want to flip back to chapter 1, I'm going to tell you the verses and read a little bit. So from 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 6, Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, notice that little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 2, verse 20, next verse. For what credit is it if we endure If when you are sin and beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So just notice the prominence and place of suffering in Peter's teaching and disciple making. Just recently I was, I was uh, sitting with a brother in the church, we were talking, and he just expressed while going through a, a particularly difficult time, he expressed how thankful he is. To have been in a church that took the time over years and years to preach that suffering is a part of the Christian life. That we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we need to be taught about it before it comes. So I want to make a few observations about these trials that we've read about in Peter. First, the trials are meant to test our faith and perfect our faith. And God gives grace through the trials. I don't know if you saw that. This is a gracious thing, Peter says, if you endure trials this way. In other words, God is not just giving you grace when he pulls you out of trials. God is giving you grace when he puts you in trials. We also read that our trials are necessary for the strengthening of our faith. If necessary, God's putting you in trials. Well, necessary for what? Well, necessary for God's work that he wants to do in your life and in the lives of other people. He also, we also saw various trials. So each of you is going through different levels of trials. Some, 
very difficult, very painful, very prolonged times of trials. And yet others, inconveniences and struggles that may be brief for a time. But we shouldn't compare our sufferings because God uses unique sufferings and difficulties in each of our lives to transform us into his image. And finally, we see suffering is the norm, not the exception for the believer. We don't like to think of sufferings in this way, and yet sufferings are part of God's normal work of redemption in our lives to cause us to call out to him. We don't want to define suffering so narrowly that we exclude most Christians from experiencing it. Are you having a difficult time putting sin to death in your own life? You're suffering. Have you been sinned against by others? You're suffering. Are you beset with anxieties and fears? This is suffering. Have you been treated unfairly by an employer? This is suffering. Are you experiencing spiritual warfare? This is most certainly suffering. Are you dealing with the physical effects of the fall and brokenness of this world, experiencing sickness and pain or death of loved ones? This is suffering. But there is good news in our passage, and that is we're only going to experience suffering for a little while. Look at verse 10 again. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What, what exactly is a little while? How much longer, we ask? A little while. Five more minutes, to use my example of a car ride. Unfortunately, I don't think Peter is saying that his readers should expect their suffering to be over in a few minutes, or a few hours, or a few days, or a few weeks, or a few months, or maybe even a few years. And yet, he's able to tell them, don't worry, after a little while. Peter's given us a couple of timeline pieces throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 6, he, he says, a little while, speaking of sufferings again. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, the time of your exile. What is that exactly? Or chapter 4, verse 2, the rest of the time, he says. Or chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Or chapter 5, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. Well, now we see something new. When is this little while going to be over? When the chief shepherd appears. Chapter 5 or 6, at the proper time he will exalt you. And we know from 2 Peter that that God's timeline is a bit different from ours. In chapter 3 verse 8, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Well, during certain periods of our life, this is a very encouraging verse. And during certain periods of suffering, we think, God, I'd rather you you shorten the time, the actual time that I'm going through this. So Peter says it's just going to be a little while that we suffer. And yet I, I think this little while means from now until the Lord's return or from now until we die and go into the Lord's presence. 
Now, we will apply what's going to happen next in the passage to it begins now and, and happens completely in the future. But how is it that we can say that our suffering is only for a little while? It's not a little while because our suffering is insignificant or short or not too bad. That's not what makes it a little while because our suffering could be, in fact, significant and painful and prolonged. The point here isn't to minimize the suffering. It's to compare it with something so much greater, so far greater in value and extent that our suffering seems finite. So if our suffering is finite, the glory is eternal. Peter wrote this in chapter 1. says, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So when Peter's saying, when you look at at the inheritance, what you're going to receive, it will make your suffering seem finite and make the glory seem eternal. Paul makes a similar comparison in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Or again in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Now what Peter and Paul are encouraging you and I to do is to look beyond our present suffering to what's beyond it. Now, this is, of course, the most difficult thing to do in the midst of suffering, is it not? To look beyond our current suffering to what comes beyond it. Now, there is a way to think about heaven so much that you're no earthly good. But there's a way to remember that what God is taking us to will make everything that we're enduring now worth it. Do we believe that? We believe that what we will experience in the future in Christ is so amazing that any amount, truly any amount of suffering in this life will be overshadowed because of the reward in the next. How long, O Lord? In Tolkien's Middle Earth, We see Boromir asking a similar how long question. He says this, how many hundreds of years needs it to make a steward a king if the king returns not? He asked, a few years maybe in other places of less royalty, my father answered. In Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. Because of the majesty of the kings of Gondor in Tolkien's story, it's worth waiting even through war and trial and difficulty for 10,000 years to wait for the king. So how much more for us who wait for the king of kings and the Lord of lords? It's just a little while. This is a word of encouragement, but it's it's also a challenging word, isn't it? 
It's a challenging word for us to hear in the midst of suffering, which is why we need to consider this word and really meditate on it before we enter severe suffering. So if the first part of figuring out how to make it to the end is to realize our suffering is only a little while, the next step is to see God's personal involvement in keeping us to that day. Brings us to point number two, through God's personal involvement and power. Look again at verse 10. So after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, what comes after that little while, that little while is very good news. In short, God himself gets involved in your story to help you get to the end. Let's look at what he says. He says, the God of all grace. When we're going through a difficult time, isn't what we want more than anything from anybody else? God, just give me grace. We want grace from God. We want grace from people, the strength to endure. We want, we want kindness and grace. And yet, in the midst of the times of suffering and struggle, we, we're tempted to think of God as being critical or unhappy with us or only as judge. Our default posture is not to see a loving father who disciplines us, but rather to see him like our own earthly fathers who disciplined us with mixed motives. We can add to that that during our times of difficulty, we often sin. We often lash out in anger. We often speak unkind words. We give in to temptation. Won't this make God treat us with more disdain? No. On the contrary, God is a God of all grace. We have such a difficult time seeing God as the father who's looking down the lane to see his wayward son return and runs to meet him. And yet we need to humble ourselves and return to him. We serve a God who leaves the 99 to rescue the one. God is not gracious to his children merely some of the time. He is the God of all grace. So why should we expect this God to be gracious to us? Well, he tells us it's because he has called you. God is gracious to those whom he has called. Now, we've been called or chosen. This language is all throughout the letter that Peter's writing. He begins the letter by calling out to the chosen exiles, those whom God has called to be his special people. He's called them out of the world to be his own special possession. We see this in chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God has not just called us out of something. He's called us to something. He's called us to his marvelous light in chapter 2. And here in chapter 5, he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, this isn't just the external call, the gospel call that goes out to all. This is God's effective call that gives what it requires and brings us into God's family through the new birth. To use Paul's language in Romans 8, those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. 
He's called us to something, to his eternal glory in Christ. So friend, God is, God's not just made it possible for us to be saved. He has called us so that we might not just be forgiven of sins, but brought into his eternal glory. Now, Peter has used calling language in a lot of different ways. And Peter, in one place, he's, you've been called to suffer. To this you have been called. But here in chapter 5, we see something way more glorious and encouraging. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. He's talked about glory throughout the book as well. Chapter 1, verse 7. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Chapter 5, verse 1, you've been a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Chapter 5, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So it's vital, it's vital for us to remember in the midst of our sufferings and difficulties That God has not just called us to salvation in a small way. He's called us to experience his eternal glory in Christ. There's a point of emphasis here in verse 10 that I don't want us to miss. He says, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Now we just... We just did our Being Reformed class a few weeks ago where we talked about our happy belief and commitment that God is sovereign over all things. But, but if we admit, sometimes when we focus on God's sovereignty, we, we lose the emphasis on God's personal, unique involvement in our own lives. We see God's providence as kind of things he puts in order so that all things work out the way he wants them to work out. But But Peter emphasizes here that God himself gets involved in your life and in your life and in your life and in your life. Especially in these moments of suffering. After a little while, God himself is going to do this. Peter doesn't let us get away with thinking of God as just some remote being, a remote force putting things in order. The God that Peter is speaking to is the God that Peter walked with. He walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows that the Father is intimately involved in all that he does. God himself will do this. And in the moments of our deepest suffering, these are the moments where it's most likely that we feel as if God is not involved in our lives. God will feel distant or uninvolved. And Peter is reminding his readers the God, the God who personally called them will personally sustain them and fortify them until the end. And our emotions or feelings in, the, in these moments do not negate what is true about God's involvement in our lives. Whether we feel God's presence in these moments or not, Peter tells us God himself is involved in restoring and strengthening So he gives us these four words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what what exactly is God himself doing for us? 
Well, Peter uses these four words, but the point of the four words is not to distinguish among each of the four and find all the unique characteristics. It's more like Peter is just piling on. He's just piling word after word after word to communicate the overwhelming support that God personally gives us in our times of suffering and sanctification. He uses restore. We might know this word from Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. In Matthew's gospel, this word is used for the disciples mending their nets. They're putting something back in order that has been torn or broken. In Hebrews 13, it's translated to equip you with everything good that you may do his will. It's putting things in order so that you can accomplish what God's called you to accomplish. And he uses confirm. Only use of this in the New Testament, but it means to make strong, to strengthen. And then he uses strengthen to be inwardly firm or committed. This is the word when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. This is what it says. He was determined. He was set. These are things that God does for us. Romans 16, God's able to strengthen you according to Paul's gospel, he says. God will establish you against the evil one in 2 Thessalonians 3. So God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish to give a strong foundation. You're rooted and grounded in love because this is Matthew 7. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? It's been founded on the rock. It's been established. Colossians 1, you are stable and steadfast. These are the things that we need in the times of our suffering. So one way to think of this would be, What do you lose sight of or grasp of in times of difficulty? Are things in your life broken? It could be your health or your mental health, or it's your relationships with others. God will restore them. Are you filled with doubts? God will confirm you and bear witness with your spirit that you're God's child. Are you weak? Is your strength failing? God will strengthen you. Is your very foundation shaken? God will establish you. These are great promises. This, it's not just that we're, our suffering is a little while. It's that the solution to that suffering is not just us trying harder. The solution is God himself is going to get involved in our life so that we'll be strengthened and restored. Now, I do believe the main application of the little while after a little while is like God bringing us to eternity. But we shouldn't think of that as something that only happens at the very end of our lives. doesn't mean we won't experience some of what verse 10 is talking about throughout our Christian life. Wayne Grudem expresses it this way. Indeed, after you have suffered a little while, an expression intentionally vague in the moment of time it implies allowing for restoration either in this present life or later, the God of all grace will restore them or make them fully prepared and complete with respect to any resource or ability which they have lost through 
this suffering. So after a little while, God, God himself gets involved to restore us and strengthen us for what we need to make it to the end. And then he goes to an ex- exclamation in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. You see, Peter is drawing attention to the fact that God's involvement in calling us and sustaining us and keeping us to the end is that God's sovereignty over all things is magnified and maintained to his own praise. To him be the dominion, the sovereignty, the power, the strength forever and ever. Amen. Peter's not interested in pointing to our feeble attempts at strength. Peter is interested in magnifying the work of God in the disciples' life to his glory. Our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. He is the sovereign ruler over all that he has made, and he exercises dominion over all things. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, Clowney says, the hope that will sustain the church through its fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. It is God who saves from start to finish. God's initiative stands at the beginning of salvation. He has called us by his grace. God's purpose arches over the end of our salvation. He has called us to his own glory. So God's called us to endure for a little while, and then God's going to restore us through his own personal involvement. Let's see Peter's final exhortation that we stand firm in grace. Look at verse 12. It says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace, to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I know some of you are really waiting for the kiss of love part. We'll get there in a minute. So we're now down to the closing credits of Peter's letter, I mean, his greetings and exhortations. So first, he mentions Silvanus, which we know from other parts of the New Testament as Silas, who was a partner with Paul in some of the missionary journeys. He actually helped Paul write some of, uh, some of his letters. And there's some debate here with Peter, whether he's saying Silvanus helped write the letter or just delivered the letter. It's probably not that important for us to make a distinction, but I do think it's likely that uh, Silvanus is delivering this letter to the recipients from Peter uh, because Peter commends him. He's kind of saying, hey, this guy carrying the letter, he's a good guy. Um, So New Testament authors don't typically write a condemnation for their, or condemnation, commendation for their co-authors. They don't condemn them either, typically. (laughs) So Peter sends greetings from Mark as well. This is most likely John Mark, who, when we were going through the gospel of Mark, we we remarked several times, John Mark was kind of a disciple of Peter and probably wrote his gospel based on a lot of Peter's testimony. So Peter here is referencing John Mark, giving John Mark's greetings as well. So you might think of uh, John Mark at, to Peter as Timothy was to Paul as far as a discipleship relationship. And then we have this interesting uh, reference to she who is at Babylon. Um, interestingly, some, some people think this was Peter's wife. 
I don't think that's the point here, because I don't think Peter's going to say his wife was in Babylon. Um, so Babylon is just, a, it's just kind of a, a reference to the fact that Rome, I think Babylon, Babylon here refers to Rome, that Rome is to the church what Babylon was to the Jews in the Old Testament. Kind of as Babylon was the center of opposition to the Jews for a time, now Rome is the center of opposition to the Christians during this time of dispersion that Peter's writing to. And he's saying, hey, even we're sending greetings from the church in Babylon, from she who is in Babylon, that even in, the, even in kind of the center of opposition, God's church is growing and sending out messages to other churches. So what does he say in these final exhortations? He says a couple of things. There are two commands left in the text, and I want to I make some sense of both of them for us so that we can see what Peter says to us. First, Peter testifies to them that he has written to them declaring the true grace of God. What does he mean by true grace? Now, we've already said Peter walked with Jesus. He was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. He was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he's emphasizing the true grace of God. Well, I think several things are going on here. I think when he says what he's written, he's referring to the whole letter. So the things that I've written are the true grace of God. So he's, he's emphasizing that salvation is all of grace. It's, it's not earned. It's not deserved. It's a gift from start to finish, from our calling in our new birth in chapter 1 to our eternal glory in chapter 5. But I also think it's important for us to, to stay, state here that Peter's also saying that, that this true grace, this true gospel is not a grace that promises an easy life here. This is not health and wealth or name it, claim it theology in Peter's letter. The true grace of God, of how God is going to work in your life to bring you from where you are to the end, is going to be a life that includes difficulty and suffering. But it's worth it. This is the true grace of God. Now, because Peter's message is the true grace of God, he commands them, stand firm in it. Now, sometimes we'll hear stand firm, and what we mean by that is continue living the moral commands or hold fast to good doctrine. And, of course, both of those things are important. We do want to continue obeying God's commands, and we want to hold fast to true doctrine, and yet I think what Peter's telling them, stand firm in the true grace of God, is don't put your confidence in anything other than God's grace. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Don't turn aside from a gospel of grace, of God's mercy and forgiveness and the free offer of salvation. Don't turn from that to spiritual pride or works righteousness or performance or ceremony. Hold fast to the truth that salvation is of the Lord. Rest your hope fully on Him, especially in the midst of your suffering. Verse 
In the midst of your suffering, don't, don't lose your confidence in the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ, which purchased our redemption. Hold fast to our chief shepherd who leads and cares for us. So this command to stand firm in it is not suddenly a, a departure from God's grace to our works. It's not Peter saying, don't screw it up. This is the very thing that you must stand firm in, realizing that salvation is by grace alone. Resist spiritual pride, resist trusting in your own righteousness, and continue entrusting yourself to the chief shepherd. Well, we're here to the kiss of love at the end. So Peter tells them, greet one another with a kiss, the kiss of love. And it was just a, it was a custom in that day, mostly true for family members or servants and masters or even uh, businessmen and their clients that they would greet one another with a familial kiss. Could be on the head, the cheek, the mouth. Um, eventually, this was turned into kind of a ritual in the church, part of their liturgy, the kiss of peace. But I wouldn't think of such a formal, ritualistic thing here that Peter's talking about. It wasn't a romantic kiss, but it did show a relational closeness. So this kiss of love, love here is agape, and the word for kiss comes from phileo, brotherly love. So this is a, this is a custom that likely won't translate to our culture exactly in the same way or many cultures in the world. But it doesn't mean we should miss the principle that Peter is saying. We are to treat one another as brothers and sisters in the church. We're to have true affection for one another. We're not to be content with relational distance or disinterest or disunity. If you if we came to church every morning and as you arrived, everyone greeted one another with a holy kiss, that, that doesn't allow for, I'm just going to sit on the other side of the church so I don't have to talk to that person. Peter expects and promotes a relational closeness within the church that often challenges us. Now, a holy handshake doesn't quite feel equivalent to a kiss of love or a holy hug may get closer to the idea, but the point is, that we should be giving a warm and personal greeting to other believers. And that they should go beyond mere formalities. We are, we are, after all, part of the family of God together. So there's really no category here for avoiding one another or giving one another the cold shoulder in the body of Christ. And the interesting thing is, this is here in the context of, of his saying, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Well, how do you do it? Well, part of it is by the relationships that God has given us in the church, that we would walk together. We are all in need of God's grace to help us make it to the end, and part of God's grace is the gift of us to each other. We need one another. So we need to work hard as a church, and I know that we do, to pursue humility and love toward one another by moving toward one another instead of away from one another. His final statement here in the, 
in the letter is peace be upon those who are in Christ. He also started the letter with may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we like to think of peace as this thing we experience after or outside of our suffering. This is what comes after we suffer for a little while, but that's not Peter's thought here. He's giving them a blessing of peace in the midst of them being exiles. He's expecting that they would experience peace now in the midst of the suffering that they are going through. And if we've put our faith in Christ, you see the peace doesn't go to everybody. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, who have been connected to Christ by faith, who've trusted in Christ alone for salvation and redemption and know that that glory that is to be revealed is the glory you're headed toward. Those are the ones who can have peace in this life. And if you're here this morning and you're you're not in Christ, and that's, that's language we use to say I'm connected to Christ by faith, If you're not in Christ, then I don't expect you to experience peace because how else can you make sense of the suffering in this world unless there is a God that in the midst of that suffering restores all things for you in Christ? The peace comes not because God removes you from the difficulty, but God carries you through the difficulty to a final redemptive end, which is beyond all comparison. It's not worth comparing to what we've suffered. So although we suffer in our little while of exile, we need to believe that our joy should not be diminished. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, we've made it to the end of First Peter. So what should we do? What should we do at the end of a sermon series like this? By the way, next week, we start the book of Ruth, so you want to be preparing for that. But what should you do at the end of a sermon series on the book of the Bible? We've had 22 sermons in the book of 1 Peter. So first, just consider going back through your sermon notes. Some of you take notes every week. Just consider going through, reading through those weeks of sermon notes to remember, what has God shown me? over these sermons. Perhaps you'd even want to listen to two or three of the sermons, re-listen to them online that maybe have particularly affected you. Maybe you need to identify particular truths that have been challenging or, or affected you in a certain way. Maybe you should read back through the whole book of 1 Peter and underline and highlight things that, that you think, I need to keep thinking on this. I've, I've read this verse many times, but it still has work to do in my soul and heart. Maybe you should share something you've learned through this series with others. But what should you do if you're here this morning and you are saying in your soul, how long, oh Lord? Some of us are stuck there at the introduction. How much longer? How much farther? The psalmist felt that as well. In Psalm 13, the psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now the psalmist gets to a point by the end of the psalm of worship. But let's not be discouraged by Peter's answer. How long? It's just a little while. I know it doesn't feel like a little while. I'm not saying it should feel like a little while. I'm saying by faith, we must remember that the things that we endure in this life are a little while compared with the glories that are going to be revealed. You say, but John, that requires so much faith. Yes, we live by faith and not by sight right now. That's what God's called us to. But it doesn't diminish the reality of the glory that will be revealed to us. So don't be discouraged by Peter's answer. And don't just try to tough it out. Don't just try to work harder. That's not Peter's message. Peter's message is look to the one who personally can restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Don't pretend you have it all together. Don't pretend you haven't blown it. God's mercy is available to those who confess their sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to ask for prayer. So let's stand together. The prayer team is going to be down front after the service to pray with you. Uh, But I invite you to to avail yourself of the mercy of God as, as we call out for him and his help in the midst of our sufferings. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are worthy. Our hope is in you. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our ability to make it. It's in our good chief shepherd who will see us to the end. Who will confirm and restore. Who will strengthen and establish. Oh God, there are those here who are in acute times of difficulty. We pray for your mercy. There are those who are here this morning whose lives are going pretty well. And yet times of suffering are coming and they don't know it yet. Oh Lord, we want to put our hope in you. Would you help establish us to trust in you in those moments. And Lord, the the times that we're in don't feel like a little while to us right now. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to your return. We look forward to the complete restoration of all things in Christ. Lord, for those who are here and don't know the peace of God, would you help them to place their faith and trust in the one who suffered and died for them, Jesus Christ, who rose again from the dead and conquered death so that we might experience his glory. 
To you, Lord, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.